The first reading is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, reading from verse 1 to 7, which can be found on page 748 of the Church Bible. Zion's new name. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. Till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, but you will be called Hatzibar and your land Beulah, for the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent, day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are now into our summer series of sermons, which Mike has led for the last 10 or so years that he's been here, always on the topic of prayer. And he's looked at it from different angles as the years have gone by. He wrote to us who were going to be preaching about this year's subject, which is waiting prayer, waiting prayer. Waiting seems to be an essential part of life. Quite often, life seems to be on hold. The New Testament Greek has two words for time. Chronos, from which we get our word chronometer or chronology, and kairos. The first means time which ticks past, and the second means an opportune time. The author of the textbook from which Mike has taken this series of sermons is a Margaret Whip, W-H-I-P-P. And she has, was at one time an oncologist in, and, and a later a hospital chaplain in the National Health Service. Most of her illustrations come from that background of patients waiting, waiting, waiting in hospital. From that background, she wrote the book as a personal, spiritual, and practical exploration of necessary waiting. We live in an impatient generation. We are in such a rush so much of the time, unforgiving in our haste. We've come to see waiting as nothing more than a problem, a nuisance, an irritating pause button that breaks the illusion of my being cheerfully in control of my life. 
This waiting is a time of uncertainty. Against the backdrop of our age, an age of instant gratification. Doctors and hospitals all have waiting targets and statistics are being watched all the time. The time we are talking about is my time. If you keep me waiting, it's my time. A period when I'm not in control. It's a nuisance. It's a bore. We all have periods when all we can do apparently is wait. At traffic lights, for our computers to reboot, for exam results, for a holiday soon to come, for a baby to arrive. You want to talk to a mother at the end of the eighth month of her pregnancy and ask her what waiting is about. We're told that patience is a virtue seldom found in women, never found in man. But Margaret Whip sees patience as, I love this, a grace to be learned. Patience, a grace to be learned or a time of aligning ourselves with God's plan and God's timing. Margaret Whip takes her illustrations from her own life experience and backs these up by using metaphors out of the Bible which she bases her chapter headings. The waiting room, that's this morning I shall start on in a few minutes. Learning to wait. The wilderness, when God seems far away. The wine press, when there is pressure, needs releasing. The night watch, watching with those who are dying. The winter, time of bereavement. And the womb, a time of new life, of nurturing. Now, if you will turn to pages 994 in the Bibles beside you, it would be a great help to the person who's going to come and read that passage and a great help to me as well. Page 994 in the New Testaments. So the second reading is taken from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. The parable of the ten virgins... At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. 
and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we look at this choice subject at the start of this summer series, I pray that you will anoint our hearts with understanding. Father, prayer is one of the most wonderful gifts you've given us, but we also confess we often find it very difficult. So open up our hearts to learn from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Waiting can be terribly difficult. Every one of us in church uh, knows what it is to wait for a huge variety of particular things. Sometimes we've been waiting for something for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then we miss it. Very frustrating. I found myself in America to get a brand new airplane from the manufacturers and fly it on my own all the way across the Atlantic and then across down into Africa to the base where I was at the time, Nairobi, Kenya. At first all went well. I collected the plane from the manufacturers in Wichita in Kansas, flew it to Boston, Massachusetts for paperwork and customs clearance for me to export this American airplane but they'd lost the relevant papers. I waited for three days, fuming. Eventually the papers came through and I was able to leave Boston, Massachusetts and fly up the East Coast to Goose Bay, Labrador. It was now dark and I was there just to refuel before hopping across to Keflavik in Iceland where I was due to arrive around about midnight. Well, I got to Keflavik all right, no problem at all, and they told me the refuelers were not on duty for another six hours. So I had more experience of fuming through being kept waiting, and I realized I was going to miss my brother's fun funeral. Uh, he hasn't had it yet. Uh, his wedding. I realized I was going to miss it. But I did get to Gatwick just in time to meet up with him, to meet his wife of about three or four hours, whom I'd never met before, before they flew off on their honeymoon. So I did get to see him a little bit. Jesus had often spoken about his home, the kingdom of God, all the way through his ministry. When he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel fairly early in their experiences with Jesus, he said, go and preach this message, the kingdom of heaven is near. Speaking of his own home, Jesus frequently said, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would give a picture to his disciples in words of what his kingdom meant to him. And here we read in our passage this morning, You'll see at the top of uh, chapter 25, 
at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who went out to meet the bridegroom. Now this parable is in the middle of some teaching. Turn back one page, page 993, and we get at the top of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus gives them many indications and signs which are being fulfilled, some of them in your day and mine, as we hear. And here this parable starts at that time, the time of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Christ indicated that there was going to be a long wait. Notice verse 5, chapter 25, verse 5, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. I wonder if that was a unique experience in world's history, because I think it's the bride who's usually a long time in coming, isn't it? Certainly in our culture. But this bridegroom was a long time in coming. And then in the, the bottom of the page, verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants in another parable that Jesus was telling him, telling them. So he was saying that there's going to be a long time between my returning to my father after the resurrection, which was still there a few days ahead, and when I come back again. In this parable, there's no given distinguishing marks separating the ten virgins. They all looked the same. No doubt there would have been some wolf whistles. No, no, perhaps they didn't do that in Jesus' time. I, I don't know. But they all looked the same. They were all gorgeous. But we read that the five were wise and, the and there were five that were foolish. Because he's talking about the end of the age, because he's talking about things privately with his disciples, many commentators that I've been looking at in the last week or so are convinced that this is about the state of the church when Jesus returns. I believe there is nothing to deny that. And the final foolish are representative of those in church who have no relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, it will be too late for them to enter the kingdom of heaven or enter into such a relationship. Perhaps the most frightening words in the whole of the Bible, and the door was shut. Lord, Lord, what about us? And the terrible words from the lips of the Lord Jesus, I never knew you. In several parables, in much of the Lord's teaching, he tells us that that is going to be the state of the church when he returns. If the Lord Jesus Christ came back today, 
would you and I be amongst the wise or the foolish in understanding this particular parable? Taking Matthew's words literally and not supplying words for him, I read that the difference between the foolish virgins and the wise virgins was just one thing, oil. And oil here clearly speaks of an already established relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The wise virgins had had the opportunity to buy oil, and they did. The foolish virgins had had equal opportunity to buy oil, and they didn't. They never did have oil with them. If you read, it wasn't their oil had run out. They never did have oil. But they looked the same as the others. It's possible to be in close contact with the church and with Christians and use Christian language and not be saved. Don't look at me now. Look down, if you like. But are you saved? Now, I use that word on purpose because Jesus uses it to describe his own motivation for coming. Luke 10.10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Every single person in church this morning started lost. You only got to watch my little grandson to realize what that means. My great-grandson, sorry. Jesus is warning us in this parable that there will be a number of people who look like Christians, associate with Christians, Members of the church could be on the PCC. And they even think they're Christians. Lord, Lord, let us in. I never knew you. And they'll be shocked to learn that on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This text is not seeking to warn those who have a false... Sorry, to warn those who have a false... This text, sorry, is not seeking to create uncertainty and doubt in the heart of a Christian. No, it is not seeking to rob a Christian of his insurance. But the Lord Jesus is seeking to warn those who have a false assurance, but not salvation. In the last days, just as in Jesus' time, today there will be those who appear to be Christians and are not. Now remember, as you look at that page and read the parable that Jesus told his disciples, Judas would have heard. The disciples we read were terribly shocked when they found out what, Jesus, what Judas really was and what he did to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christians will be shocked. And some of our friends who aren't with us there in heaven. 
the Lord is seeking to warn. Three things we can learn. The first thing that we might learn in this chapter is that God will surprise us. In the previous chapter, on the same page, we read these words, verse 36 of chapter 24, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Do you know Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back? It's not in his diary, but it's in his Father's diary. And one day, my son, it's time to go back. And that's the only warning Jesus will get. So the first thing is, God is going to surprise us. Several times in the Bible, particularly in Revelation chapter 1, we read that when he appears, the nations will mourn because of him. Because suddenly they will realize that the message of Jesus was true and they've left him out of their lives. Ten virgins waiting. They even fall asleep and the bridegroom comes at midnight. What a rotten time to arrive. Jesus isn't going to suit you or me with the chosen time of his arrival. He amplifies this point at the end when, in verse 13, summing up, he says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The second thing we might learn from this chapter is that God will expose. There are going to be those trying to get into heaven and suddenly it will become very painfully obvious that they are excluded while others have gone. When I was a kid, after uh, the, the, the early years after the Second World War, there was a huge amount of teaching in the church then about the return of Christ. We'd just come through a most horrific world war. And suddenly there was talk of peace everywhere. And people said, is this when Jesus is going to return? So there was a lot of teaching. And I'll never forget one Sunday evening in the church where I was, the preacher was tremendously powerful on the return of Christ. So much so that I kept looking around to see if he was coming in the door. It was that electric. We don't hear much teaching about the return of Christ. I honestly don't think I've heard one sermon on the return of Christ since I've been here. Some of you may want to prove me wrong. But God is going to expose on that day. Suddenly the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins will become painfully apparent. But do you know Jesus brought this division right at the beginning? Let me read this to you. You know it so well. Mark chapter 13. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Jesus talking. Not one of the other Bible teachers or Pharisees. This is the Son of God speaking. 
When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once received it with joy. But since they have no roots, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil ref refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. The sower sowed the same seed. It's the same oil that was available through the merchants to ten virgins. And that's the metaphor that Jesus uses here, speaking of a relationship with God through his Son. When the bridegroom came, five virgins were found to be without oil. Tell me, have you got your oil with you this morning? Are you saved in Jesus' language? Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. And what had Paul been writing about when he gave the Corinthians this advice? Listen, he says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. <coughs> For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Roger has given us I think one of the most dramatic and frightening testimonies that I've ever heard. But the thing that comes through Roger loud and clear is that he has a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Roger knows he's going to die. By the way, so are you, unless the Lord comes back in the meantime. Where, O oh, death, is your victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. And what is the work God requires of us? Surely this is given to us when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few hours after giving this parable. Chapter 26, verse 40, 
if you want to turn over the page, when Jesus came back to Peter, James, and John, he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God will surprise God will expose, and God will divide. As I said before, the most frightening words in the whole Bible, and the door was shut. One cannot get oil from another Christian. That's the meaning behind the fact that the Wise virgins did not share their oil. When I was serving the Lord in Wiltshire, looking after nine rural parishes, one of the congregations in one of the churches had been a queen's chaplain. He rejoiced in the fact that Prince Charles had told him, I love you so much because you had taught me hunting, shooting, and fishing when Charles was a teenager and this chaplain was then serving the queen. He died during my time there in Wiltshire. And the rector of the team of churches under whom I was working was called to see Mavis, this dead man's widow. And she said, have I been listening yesterday on Sunday to what you, John, his name was, wasn't me, was preaching? I'm not saved. I thought I was, this is the absolutely words, I thought I was going to get to heaven because my husband was a clergyman and a queen's chaplain. And she had come to the realization that she, after all these years, something like 55 years of marriage, she was outside of the kingdom. And the rector had the joy of leading her to the Lord Jesus Christ years after her husband had died. You and I live in the period between Christ's return to his father after he had completed his father's commission and his second coming. We are in what I call the supreme waiting time. How are you using it? What should I pray as I wait for the Lord? This church is set on a year of mission. Some information has already been given to us and some is yet to come, but it's going to sort of start in September. Are you excited about this or perhaps nervous of what it might mean? Because the vicar might take you I'm not stopping on anyone on purpose, out into the precincts and say, give your testimony to this bunch of people. Most of us, that would scare the living daylights out of us. 
When Paul, while he was still called Saul, was on his way to Damascus, ready to arrest and hurl Christians into prison back in Jerusalem, suddenly there was a great big light. And we all know the story of Saul's conversion. Saul asked two questions. I was reading this yesterday morning with Wendy in our reading time. The first question, when he got this light and he was thrown to the ground, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> who are you would have been enough, but he called the voice who was speaking to him, Lord, the name God had given Moses for the children of Israel's sake at the burning bush, the Lord. Sounds like the Hebrew for I am. And Saul asked this voice, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the other question is, what shall I do, Lord? And we all know the story of how he was led by the hand into Damascus. And three days later, the Lord removed the scales on his eyes and he could see. And what he was told then from God you must tell him how much he must suffer for my name. So what should you and I be doing as we wait and wait and wait and wait? Praying, who are you, Lord? Because if he is God, if this gospel is true, the only other question, unless you're going to walk away, is, Lord, what will you have me to do? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we know that Jesus came. He was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead. But we also know that one day he will return. Help us all to have availed ourselves of that salvation. Then help us to ask you, who are you in my life and what do you want me to do? Will you bless this church? Lord Jesus Christ.